As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Show and thank you for joining us for our latest oral odyssey in which we attempt to answer listener questions. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to answer those questions is a man whose favourite wine is Stephen Bergwine in that nice 97th minute vintage. Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello. I'm glad you brought that up. I spent like a good 45 minutes mesmerized watching a YouTube video about or a series of YouTube videos about a sommelier telling me all about wine. I don't know anything about wine. I learned a few new things yesterday. So yes, I now have favorite vintages and things like that. I don't know what I'm talking about at all, but it was good video. It was good content. And that's a great introduction, Ryan. Thanks for that. You're welcome. You now have favorite vintages, vintages of wine based on a YouTube video rather than trying the wines. Yeah, that's correct. That's how it great. works. It's all, it's all, you don't need to taste it at all. You can learn everything about wine from the label itself and nothing else. That is not true. That is the opposite of the lesson he was trying to teach. <laughs> Every day is not a school day. The, t- the, the tale twists, Taylor. Um, <laughs> yes, indeed. I was referring to uh, Leicester 2, Tottenham 3, Stephen Bergwijn, uh, making a rather entertaining ending to that one. But we are just beginning this pod, and joining us here is a man who's in a difficult spot because uh, he loves the movie Encanto, but he also wants to talk about Bruno, no, no, no. Is that right, Joe Larry? Oh, Ryan, that song's going to be stuck in my head for so long now. It's also incredibly <laughs> catchy, so I can't decide if I should be annoyed or happy that you've reintroduced that to my brain. How you doing? I'm doing very well. It's in my brain, Joe, because I'm homeschooling at the moment, or my kids are doing virtual schooling, I should say. I'm not teaching them. Um, But uh, my uh, thing that I do in the afternoon when I need to sort of cool off a little bit is putting Canto on. So it's been on a lot in our home. And I was just thinking how that song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, No, 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 which is very, very catchy indeed, that's going to get used for Mr. Fernandez at some point, isn't it? Oh, it's got to. It's got to, especially with everything going on with Manchester United right now. Ryan, it's only a matter of time, really. 
Yes, indeed. Well, Mr. Bruno got two assists against Brentford on Wednesday evening, but also had a rather hilarious chance in the 93rd minute of that game where he attempted a chip and sort of <laughs> meekly put it into the keeper's gloves. Listen, have a look at that one uh, if you dare. Rounding out our group today is a man we'll tread very carefully around today as well. His hometown tennis hero went to Australia to play in the Open, but he was sent home. Not for Djokovic reasons, but for losing in straight sets reasons. How are you holding up, Graham? Yeah, not bad. I mean, uh, he didn't get sent home for Djokovic reasons, so still winning in my book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing that you drew my attention to, Graham, uh, at the Australian Open, where they play tennis rather than soccer, they are doing the Ronaldo C thing, aren't they? They are, and it's becoming a bit of a dominating storyline. Everyone's talking about how irritating it is, including Mr. Murray, who after his first round victory said, yes, it was it was very, very irritating and I wish they would stop doing it. Um, and yeah, I've, I've never been a bigger Andy Murray fan than after that <laughs> remark. So Murray said something like, why are they booing me? Oh, they're not saying boo or boo earns. They're saying shoo. Is that right? <laughs> boo earns, yeah. <laughs> they're saying boo earns. <laughs> so yeah, that uh, Ronaldo's responsible for ruining tennis now is the headline, right? Yeah, uh, well, Gerard Piquet did it first, and then Ronaldo's following <laughs> up. He's just, he's just confirming it. <laughs> Graham, we we established yesterday, I think, after recording, that I don't know anything about tennis or know very little. Maybe yes, it was we before did. recording. Uh, is Andy Murray on his way out? I'm looking at at his results, oh. and I realized that he was not ranked at all. So I'm wondering, is oh, he still is, is he still around? Is he still going to be rough good? Question. Rough question. Rough question. So Andy Murray has had a, it's fair to say a, a rough few years with injury. He had a, an operation to have a metal hip installed, and so he's doing something that no men's singles player has ever done before. He is playing with a metal hip, so his ranking is very low. <laughs> but he's been playing well recently. He made a final last week in Sydney, and that's in my opinion that was a factor why he did so poorly in the Australian Open was he was a little bit tired and he has 34 with a metal hip so can uh, maybe excuse him for that yeah Taylor the TLDR is uh, he was British now he's Scottish that's basically it so um, make <laughs> the him TLDR he's more machine now the, than man that's what I'm hearing yeah he's the bionic man yeah the TLDR <laughs> is that uh, England's treasured tennis tournament has been more recently won by a Scot than an Englishman uh, that's the TLDR a Brit Graham, a Brit a Brit. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. now he's a Brit. I, I regret my decision to ask this question. <laughs> uh, before we get to our listener questions, by the way, a funny story caught my attention on this very day. I don't know if you saw this, gents. Uh, Bordeaux in Ligue 1 have dropped their shirt sponsor, which is Winamax, which appears to be the French paddy power, like a betting company. Um, they sponsor Bordeaux for 1.3 million euro a year. Uh, they've been dropped for repeatedly posting insulting memes and ridiculing the poor form of the team who are in 19th <laughs> in Liga at the moment. The quote, we are terminating our partnership contract with Winamax, whose communication had disassociated, disassociated itself from the club through videos or tweets about the last match. We have humour, we have humour, but here we are not in the spirit of a partnership. Uh, the best thing about this was uh, Winamax's response to that. They tweeted, uh, we've been looking for a good defence for an hour, but like the, like the team, we can't find one. Woo! They lead that into is, it. That's spicy. That's, that's that so actually good. happened in Scottish football, though. The, um, the Scottish Premiership used to be sponsored by Ladbrokes, a bookmakers in the UK. And basically a factor in that partnership ending a couple of seasons ago was that Ladbrokes' Twitter account kept on making fun of Scottish football, which wasn't ideal for, the, right. ideal for the sponsor of the league. I did suspect at times that maybe Ryan Bailey was the admin behind that uh, Twitter account. <laughs> maybe. And it does remind me, going, do you remember, did Tottenham have like a Dulux dog, a paint oh, dog, yeah. that was mocking them and it got fired as well? <laughs> 
That was that was so funny. That was an all time uh, day on Twitter. That was one of the best Twitter days. Yeah. I forgot all about that. Yeah. So that, this is the French version of that. Also, it, it kind of reminded me, like, literally, you know, getting paid to uh, to be pranked upon. It's like Mr. Burns hiring Homer as his prank monkey, Taylor. You know, just just <laughs> literally pay, pay, being paid to insult him and treat him like a clown. That's what Bordeaux were doing with this Winamax group, I think. That's that's I believe our second Simpsons reference of the episode. That's good work, fellas. Uh, yeah. the, I would go different. I would say this is the Scorpion and the Frog uh, fable in my mind because it's sort of when you have a gambling company as your sponsor, I feel like it has been established that gambling companies want to promote their brand, want to promote themselves as sort of the the laddish place to go place a bet, and this is part and parcel of that. So I think having them as a sponsor automatically means they might be uh, doing some things at your expense that you might not love. So maybe it's a cautionary tale for future clubs when deciding on their sponsors. And are they upset about being dropped from the shirt? Nope, because we're all talking about them. It did exactly what they wanted. Uh, So let's stop talking about them. Forget I said their name. And let's move on to the questions. Uh, The first one here from Jake Schroeter. Who says the Premier League has decided to allow one amateur player per team and you have been selected? Which Premier League team would you choose to be added to in order to give you the best chance to score your first and potentially only Premier League go goal? You may be you may be added to the squad at any position. Taylor Rockwell, I'm going to come to you. Where would you place yourself in the Premier League? So I'm going to be like, I'm, I'm approaching this one as though I'm actually me. Uh, and therefore, I'm not going to beat anybody in like an individual 1v1. I'm not taking anybody on and getting past them. It's basically, I feel like, set pieces or functioning within a system. And I'm thinking, why not both? My answer to this question is Arsenal. Uh, because I think Mikel uh, Arteta wants workers who can improvise, but I think he wants them to play in the system. He wants them to follow the instructions to do as they're instructed and then maybe play within th- that a little bit. So I feel like I'm going to show up there. It's going to be yes, sir, no, sir from the beginning. A lot of compliments about his hair and how well coiffed it is. I feel like that gets me into the match day squad. Uh, Arsenal have... Uh, fourth most goals off of set pieces this season. They've gotten eight. So I think maybe I'm sneaking in there to get a, a corner or a set piece, some sort of uh, scrappy goal. Uh, maybe I'm selling myself a little bit short, but I don't think I am because I'm not sure I'm quite at the Premier League level, especially <laughs> at my age. So I'm saying Arsenal off a set piece. That's where I'm going in. That's a good answer, Taylor. If any Premier League club were to bring on an amateur play, it would be Banter FC, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think that would be a good Arsenal move, <laughs> definitely. Um, I'll, I'll go with mine, actually. Um, I was tempted to answer this question with, like, a less good team. Um, but I fell on the best team at the moment, yeah, Manchester so City. I. <laughs> I, I've gone for Manchester City. I would propose that I would be their false nine. Because not only is it a pretty interchangeable role, and I wouldn't annoy anybody when I was dropping in there. Any, literally anyone in that team can do that false nine position. They change around all the time. But to be the Man City false nine or, you know, a forward, you just need to be able to get in the six-yard box and someone will cut the ball back to you. They'll pass it to you for a tap-in. That is the Man City goal. The wide player driving towards the touchline behind the goal, cuts it back in the six-yard box, tap-in. That's how I get my single goal. Graham, is that a genius plan? You have hit upon my theory exactly there. That was completely <laughs> what I had down as well. Um, I said, is it too, I had in my notes, is it too obvious to say Manchester City? My reasoning went a bit beyond the fact that they are the best team in the league. And as you say there, I figure if I just put myself between the penalty spot and the six-yard box often enough, I'm going to get on the end of one of those, those cutbacks from the byline that City's attackers play over and over again in pretty much every match they play. 
I did look at, stati- at the statistics of who creates the most chances. So Liverpool averaged the most chances um, per game in the Premier League this season. They um, are averaging 4.38 chance-creating actions per 90 minutes. But I just wouldn't back myself to have the stamina to keep up with their, their front three. Whereas City, as as you say there, Ryan, they do kind of send players up to up the wide areas and they cut it back. And yeah. I feel like I could finish a chance from about six yards out into an empty net. <laughs> I, that is not beyond me. So I mean, that's where I'm putting myself. I can in my head, but in practice, Graham, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe we're overrating ourselves here. Maybe so. Maybe so. Joe Lowry, you are the youngest and perhaps in theory the most able to keep up with the Premier League team. Who did you choose? <laughs> I think in theory is is carrying a lot of weight in that particular <laughs> sentence. Um, so I approach this question... Uh, very realistically, given my own abilities, which are few and far between. So I, I decided that I'm in trouble pretty much no matter what. And, and which team I'm on really isn't going to have all that much of an effect, at least in open play. Like Taylor, I decided to to go more of the set piece route. So or at least a dead ball situation. So I, I decided I need a team that gets a lot of those dead ball moments and I'd prefer them to be penalties, to be honest. Jake never says this goal has to be an open play. He never says this goal cannot be a penalty. So with that in mind, guys, I'm going Chelsea. They've attempted seven penalty kicks in the Premier League this season, which is more than any other team. Two more than West Ham, uh, who are second in that ranking, and three more than a slew of teams that are that are tied for third with four penalty kicks. The bad news for me is that Chelsea haven't missed a penalty yet this year. So if I really do get to take one, the pressure is going to be on. I, I back myself. I really do to score a penalty. Maybe not against a Premier League keeper, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going bottom. I'm going bottom right. I'm just going to say that now, hoping that they're not listening. I'm going bottom right. I'm going Waste placement. Power. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going placement. I'm going placement. Um, power is a bit of a sketchy one for me, Graham. The only other option <laughs> here besides Chelsea is is similar to what Taylor said with set pieces. I think you ended up going more for the open play route with Arsenal, Taylor, but I think you hit at something that I agree with. I want a creative set piece team, and, and Brentford mm-hmm. is my choice for that. They drop some really good throw-in routines, which I think you can loop in with set pieces. Certainly, you can loop them in with dead ball situations. And they have some good set pieces as well, some good free kicks that I think could get me a free-ish, free-ish look at at goal in open play sort of after the, the set piece is taken. So either Brentford or Chelsea, but preferably Chelsea. Okay, we've all overlooked the most obvious answer here. It's just struck me. We should all say that we should play for Norwich and be their goalkeeper because you could just throw it in your own net. Nothing in the question (laughs) says you can't score an own goal. There's a lot of opportunity here to to ridicule Josh Sargent and find ways to burn him. <laughs> I had like three different jokes and I was like, that's that's too mean. We don't need to to do any more punching down on this one. Uh, but yeah, uh, Ryan, I like your approach instead. Yeah, just throw it to your own goal. It'll be yeah. fine. And, and, and Norwich, you know, it doesn't matter. They're going down anyway. Goalkeepers seize the ball a lot, probably. <laughs> a lot of chances to take goal kicks into your own net. I think that's the solution here. Yeah, we've nailed that one. <laughs> I am still curious. I think Graham was as well. Joe, are you like, are you just run up and hit the ball? Are you head? Are you like staring at the goalkeeper to see what he does? Are you doing like the hop, the jump, the stutter step? No, no, no. maybe a little stutter step early in the run up. But like, (laughs) I think by just explaining where exactly I'm going to put the ball, or at least where I'm going to try to put the ball, uh, it's pretty clear that I don't really care what the goalkeeper's going to (laughs) do. I'm just going for the bottom right corner of the net, and I'm hoping that he dives the other way, or at least stays in the middle. Maybe he thinks I'm going to do a panenka. That would be saucy. But no, bottom right. You're right footed. Sure. I'm right-footed, Graham. Um, but See, I would always go across, back across goal with a right-footed shot rather than 
you're going you're going open foot you and could to hook the right. it. You could hook it. Like yeah, right. yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt to put some bend on the ball. But either way, Graham, maybe the goalkeeper's gonna think what you think, and he's gonna say, "Wow, this guy's actually trash," and he's gonna go bottom left because oh, he's right footed. And then I go opening up to the bottom right, and the ball's in the back of the net, and I'm the hero at Stanford Bridge, and I'm kissing Tom. <laughs> no, I don't know what's happening at that oh, point. Go on. Fanfiction. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, I think uh, if I was going to take a penalty against a Premier League team, I'd have to do some trickery. Graham, do you remember Lee Trundle, sort of journeyman lowly yeah. player? There's this clip uh-huh. of him, if you look him up online. Um, he's walking towards the penalty spot, like, to place the ball. He reaches down, like, to, like, as in, like, put it on the spot correctly. And as he does so, he just punts the ball. So he takes a keeper completely by surprise and scores the penalty. It's genius. I think I'd have to do something like that, some trickery to get away with it. Or if, or if I could get one of you guys as like my amateur buddy, we could do the Henri uh, Perez oh, routine, but but better it. than Henri and Perez. Yeah, <laughs> who did who did it originally? Suarez Cruyff. and Messi did it as well, didn't they? Oh, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, excellent question, Jake. Thank you very much. James Joker asks, can you give us some very specific predictions for your national team in 2022, please? Um, we've got four different national teams represented on this show. Of course, the US, England. Scotland and the People's Republic of Arizona. Um, so we'll go round all of them. Is that right? You know, you know, yeah, oh slogan. Yeah. We, yeah, we're working. We don't on care for your time but... zones. We we yeah. play soccer. That's yeah. uh, that's how you guys roll. Definitely. Um, so why don't we start? What's the national anthem? <laughs> oh, you don't want to know. Yeah, we can't. Actually, we can't repeat any of it on this podcast. All right, fair enough. <laughs> it's just it's just gunfire for a minute. I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Joe, why don't we start with you? You can go with the US instead. You're, uh, you're the uh, the other republic in which you okay. live. Um, specific predictions, sir. Okay, I've got three. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly because I know we've got a lot of predictions to get to. My first one is that Timothy Weah will lead the US men's national team in goals over the final five World Cup qualifiers. So Timothy Weah is just now, this is the issue with this prediction, but he's just now getting back to fitness after a thigh injury. Kept him out for six weeks or so uh, earlier this season in December and into the new year. He made a 25-minute substitute appearance for Lille on Wednesday, so that is a good sign for him. I, I think he might be, Tim Weah, might be the most dangerous attacker that the U.S. has right now. With Christian Pulisic struggling to really find his way with Chelsea, and, and even when he was with the national team earlier in this cycle with World Cup qualifying, wasn't particularly effective. Joe Reyna's still not back and playing, and I don't think we can really rely on any of the nines right now to put the ball in the back of the net. So if Tim Weah is in that squad, and, and he will be at some point, I, I hope he's involved in this window, but we don't really know. I think he's got the ability to lead the U.S. in goals over these next five games. So that's prediction number one. Number two, there will be at least one moment of VAR chaos in one of these upcoming qualifiers for the United States men's national oh, yeah. team. CONCACAF just announced yesterday, Wednesday, that VAR is coming to the last five World Cup qualifiers. It was not involved earlier on in this World Cup qualification process, and there was controversy. I think about the U.S. game against Jamaica in Austin. There was controversy from the start of that game. Jamaica probably should have been down to 10 men, but weren't. The U.S. has also benefited from not having a VAR, so it does cut both ways. But something's going to happen. It always does. In in CONCACAF, you can bet it's going to be wild. So that's prediction number two. And then finally, number three, if the U.S. makes it to Qatar, Yunus Musa will start every single game that the U.S. plays. Whether that's three games, all in the group stage, or it's four or five or however many. Seven. Yes, seven. Yeah, exactly. We can dream. Uh, I think Yunus Musa is going to start every game. I think he's that important to this team. I think he's more of a calm presence in that midfield than a guy like Weston McKinney. And, and I think Musa can can carry that weight on his legs. Really, I, I just want that prediction to encapsulate how important I think Musa is to this team. And I think we'll see that as the U.S. continues to push towards Qatar. 
I like all of those, Joe. With the VAR situation, isn't there an integrity issue introducing it at yes. this point yes. in the, yeah. <laughs> in the mm-hmm. qualification process? Because obviously some games have happened without it. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, everything you just said I think is exactly right. And CONCACAF really could have done this before the whole cycle started because their excuse was we just can't do it in all these different venues. And now they are deciding that they can. <laughs> and uh, that's, I mean, it's cool and all, but yeah, this could have happened months ago, guys. Yeah, we can't do it. We can't afford VAR. Are you sure? Yeah, you know what? We'll do it. <laughs> Gotta love CONCACAF. <laughs> Gotta love CONCACAF. Wonderful. What a time to be alive. Taylor, what do you think? Your predictions? Uh, yeah, I've got I've got three as well. Um, I I think I'm I'm going a, a more. I wrote these that may be feeling more optimistic, but here we go. I think the U.S. will lose a World Cup qualifier that they probably should not, but they will still qualify. And I'm going to say comfortably, Joe. I don't know if you, if you're with me on this. I'm I'm sort of tired of having to say if and when. And part of that yeah. is just that like World Cup qualifying has gone on for forever. But I think also in other World Cup qualifying cycles. Because they, they do tend to, maybe sometimes they're top of the table, but sometimes they're in third or second, but that's a, where they end up. There is a level of comfort. There is a like, yeah, it's, it's going okay. We kind of know this is how it goes. But I think 2018 and the failure to qualify has made us all just have such PTSD when it comes to World Cup qualifying that there's this hesitation to ever say it's going well, it's going to go well, I don't want to jinx it, I don't want to say it's fine and then it doesn't go fine and then I lied to people, but I just feel like this team is is gelling even with the injuries, even with the areas where we're not sure who's going to be the starter or if we have enough depth there, I still think this team finds a way to qualify and I think they will lose a game along the way that maybe they shouldn't have, but Joe, here's my, my next big one. I think the U.S. is going to get its first ever win in World Cup qualifying at the Azteca. Uh, I think, yeah. And that would be major. That would be a big, big, big thing. But I feel like there's going to be pressure on Mexico to get a result and for Tata to show that he can win again against the U.S. because of those three losses. And I think U.S. will be happy with a point at most in that game. That is historically the best they have done. So I could see them sitting off a little bit more, not feeling that pressure to make something happen. And I thought Mexico might. You could see how that could boil over. Tensions could get to them. The atmosphere could be a little bit rough. And maybe the U.S. just grinds their way to that result. Maybe they end up playing really good football and find a way to win. But that would be prediction number two. And my third prediction is somewhere along the way in World Cup qualifying, John Brooks will have a performance that reminds us that he is a very good defender. We haven't seen him for the national team for a while. When we have, it's been sort of up and down. There have been inconsistencies. But we haven't seen a truly lights-out performance from him in a while. And that could mean he does decently when it comes to the defense and then gets a, a headed goal or something off a set piece. It could just mean that he's a lockdown defender who wins everything and plays the ball out of the back really effectively. Either way, I think we're due for a strong performance from John Brooks. So those would be my three. All of them, I think, fairly optimistic. And I look forward to those hopes being dashed quite expertly. Oh, come on. Who's the game? Did you say who the game you're going to lose against that you shouldn't? Is it someone like Canada or? Uh, no, because I wouldn't even say like that is a we definitely should beat them. I will say without Alfonso Davies, it definitely sort of pushes the advantage towards the U.S. The weather and atmosphere there uh, could be problematic. Canada, I didn't realize, have a history of this. They did this in World Cup qualifying previously. I can't remember if it was like against Honduras. It was a long, long time ago, but they basically played at a public park in blizzard conditions and made it uh, really, really difficult for the uh, opponent to even have fans there. Uh, and so I, I think there'll be some gamesmanship from Canada. Who knows what will happen there? But I mean more of a like, maybe we drop points on the road 
uh, in El Salvador. I guess we've already played on the road in El Salvador, but I think there's a game that probably we should be winning, but maybe it's just after a big result or after we've already qualified, we end up dropping points to a team that we probably should be beating. Excellent stuff. Graham Rutherford, Scotland, specific predictions. Okay, so I'm going to go with a goals-related prediction, first of all. So Scotland scored 21 goals in 15 games in 2021. My very specific prediction is that Scotland will score more than 21 goals in 2022, despite the likely fact that we'll play fewer than 15 games over the course of the year. I think... um, There's been real signs after the Euros that the character of this Scotland team is changing quite fundamentally, particularly in the games against Israel, Moldova and Denmark, those World Cup qualifiers. Scotland were were a much more attacking side in those games. We have better attacking players than we've had for a long time. Um, che Adams in particular looks to have really bedded into the to the team. Keep in mind that when the the Euros when it was Euros in the summer, he'd only actually played one friendly match for for Scotland, so he was pretty much coming in cold. And he's now looking really good, even as a, as a lone forward. It used to be that Dykes and Adams used to come as a package. Now I think we can play Adams on his own and use a, a body somewhere else. And um, if Scotland get to the World Cup, and I genuinely think we have a good chance getting through the the playoffs, given the draw, I think it was all about the draw, and we've got a reasonably favourable draw, um, I think you'll see a different team to the one that played at the Euros. Maybe not necessarily a better team, but certainly the the focus has has shifted a lot since the Euros, and we we can control games and we're much better at attacking now. So that's um, a goals-related prediction. Another quick prediction, Scotland will play a fixture with four fullbacks in our back five at some point. So I think we'll have a, a game where we play Robertson, Tierney and Patterson, which has already happened. So Robertson as the left wing back, Tierney as the left sided centre back and Patterson as the right wing back. But we also have a, a a young left back primarily coming through in Serie A called Aaron Hickey. He's been linked with uh, Aston Villa recently. Um, I think he's a real talent. I think it's only a natural uh, matter of time, even until he's in the national squad, and he can play on the right as well. So I think he could play on the right side of the of the back three. So I think that's uh, yeah, we'll have a game where we have four fullbacks in our back five, and then um, another. My last very specific prediction about Scotland is we will get to the World Cup, but we will get eliminated in the most Scotland way possible, and that could be that could be in the group. Maybe it's in the last 16. I hope it's in the last 16 or, uh, or you know, even the quarterfinals. That would be incredible. But what? no matter what happens, no matter what happens, when we go out, it will be classically Scottish. It will be a deflection off a backside of one of John McGinn's backside, maybe one of our own players, or or the ball will bounce in off the underside of a giant jumbotron, Dallas Cowboy style, or <laughs> something. It'll be something like that. It'll be the most ridiculous goal you've ever seen in your life, and you can you can count on it happening to Scotland. Ah, oh, bless you, Graham. Uh, by the way, is there a possibility to have two fullbacks as Robertson and Patterson? It being like a Twilight themed team. <laughs> I'd never even put those two two things together <laughs> because why would I? But you yeah, know, I was going to say, Graham. I feel like that's okay. <laughs> I think you can be excused for that. Just the way my brain works. I apologise for that. Um, I suppose I should give some. Well, I've only actually prepared one prediction for England. I must admit, uh, England have a friendly game against Switzerland coming up in March. I don't really care about that that much because I feel the same way about international friendlies that Ron Swanson feels about cats. They're pointless. But after that, <laughs> um, Nations League coming up in June. Hungary, Germany and Italy are the opponents there, playing them and then uh, playing them all again in September. So those, basically, apart from the Switzerland game, six 
really good competitive games to warm up for the World Cup, which we will be at. Um, my very specific prediction, England will make it to the final, but Harry Kane will score less than three tournament goals. He scored four goals at the Euros. Um, and I do worry because his position basically is the only position England have that doesn't have strength in depth. But my theory is the goals, uh, my theory is that I don't think Harry Kane is at his best uh, and hasn't been in recent England tournaments. Uh, and the goals will come from wide positions in midfield. Your Sterlings, your Mounts, your Sackers, that kind of thing. Uh, and in terms of getting to the final, it feels, I- I've never felt particularly confident in my national team, but the last few years that, Confidence has been increasing, getting to the World Cup semi-finals, then the Euro finals. Next logical step feels like a World Cup final. And I, I, I genuinely feel I don't see why it couldn't happen at this point. And, and a lot of it is confidence because the England team, I think what's held them back for decades is confidence. Uh, and it's a mental game for, for the England team in many ways. And this team knows how to get to a major final. It's got experience of doing so with a relatively young team as well. Uh, enjoying the best results in decades as well. And as I say, lots of strength in depth here as well. And you think about all the players who weren't even in the most recent squad. And it's incredible depth this team has. No clear weaknesses. The best England team of my lifetime. Taylor, um, shall I crack the champagne now or wait until December? What do you think? See, it's funny because over the course of that explanation, I feel like there were moments when you started to doubt yourself and doubt <laughs> England's ability as you were talking. Sort of like, eh, there's, there's a lot of depth and they're relatively young and uh, yeah, this might go poorly. I don't know. Well, if you say right, it like that. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like Gareth Southgate has been there for a while and to me, I, I would I would be happy for you if your prediction went the way you're hoping it does. I feel like we could also be poised for that. Like, this is it. They've been together. They've had all this opportunity. They've figured it out. They know how to make it work. And they're out in the group stage. Yeah. Uh, I I hope I am wrong uh, for your sake, Ryan, you as my friend. But I hope I am right for your sake, Graham, who is also my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, my evil laugh. My, my confidence uh, was expressed this morning. I went on the FIFA World Cup website and mm-hmm. uh, re- uh, tried to apply for tickets. I bought the seven-ticket package for England, uh, which will get me into all seven games in theory. It wasn't even that much. It was sixteen hundred dollars for the uh, for the lowest category. So we'll see how that goes and how England goes. Uh, yeah, Graham, you feeling good about England's run? How do you feel? Oh, I will love it so much, Kevin Keegan style, if you go out in the group stages. <laughs> Graham, I think that's <laughs> just not when to you take cru- us to break, not- to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not not to be too cruel, but especially if you've spent $1,600 on seven match tickets as well. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if you go out in the group stage, do you still have to go to the other, like, four games? That's a good question. Oh, please say you do. Please say you <laughs> Watch do. Watch Scotland's triumphant run to the final instead. Yeah. Um, what, what might be interesting, James, if, if any of our respective national teams end up playing each other this year, won't that be fun? Interesting. Mm. Joe, what do you think? Could that happen? I like it. Let's do a little Tea Party repeat or a little, I don't know, USA-Scotland clash. I can get down for that. Mm, no more throwing tea in the ocean without pre-boiling it as a courtesy first. That's what I say, Joseph. Anyway, we should go to a break. When we come back, more questions are back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We're taking your listener questions. Here comes one from Robert Cordova. Hey, Robert, what goal does TSS think was the goal of the year for 2021? I'm going to lay the table straight away, Joseph Lowry, with Eric Lamella's Rabona in the North mm. London Derby of March 2021. You know the one, not that other Rabona that he did, this Rabona, the North London <laughs> Derby one. Um, this one, I, I, it won the Pushkas Award, which passed me by. It was like last week. I didn't even realise. But uh, Joe, that's where I'm setting the table out. That's a really, really good one, Ryan. It's a beautiful goal. And I remember when that goal was scored thinking, it's going to be hard to beat that. And I don't know if any of the nominations that I have We'll actually beat that, but I've got a couple other uh, uh, others to consider here. The first one, I'm trying not to have this MLS bias here, but I really do think this is one of the best goals of the entire year. Can Jakub I guess Lezes is, goal. Yeah, sorry, sorry, oh, Taylor. No, 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 I would have been wrong. I would have been wrong. Okay, well, well then it. I want to hear what yours is eventually. Um, this is this goal from the Philadelphia Union center back, Jakub Gleznes. Scoring from maybe 30 or 32 yards out, driving forward with the ball. It's against Atlanta United at Mercedes-Benz in June of this past year. And he shoots the ball so hard with his right foot that it hits the underside of the crossbar, bounces off the ground, back to the underside of the bar, back to the ground, back to the bar again, and then back down. Mm-hmm. And it sort of just trickles out from there or trickles into the back of the net, I should say. What a goal. I've never seen something quite like that. It's one of the most satisfying goals of the year. The only other one I have quickly is, is Tiago's goal against Porto oh, in the Champions yes. League. This one is, is satisfying in a different way than Glesnes' goal. Technically ridiculous. The ball's coming towards Tiago for Liverpool in the Champions League, as I said. He hits the ball first time, and he hits it so cleanly with his right foot. It just glides into the bottom right corner of the net. It, it might bounce. We're not really... I don't think we ever fully decided as a society if the ball hits the ground or not. But it is technically incredible as a strike. So the Tiago one and the Gleznes one, I don't know if either one of those is better than Lamella. Maybe maybe one of them is, maybe it's not. But those two are the ones that came to mind for me. Yeah, I had Tiago as a close second there. And yeah. I think this one inspired debates whether it was a volley or a half volley yep. up and down the universe, Graham. Yep. Yeah. I was, gonna, I was just going to say, I'll jump in quickly to say that Tiago's was, was, was also mine. And the fact that you're not sure if it bounces, it's like it's on a top of like a magnetic field or something. Yeah, and the yeah. way it sort of, it, you know, as gravity does, it, the ball gets pulled to the ground and then it kind of pushes back up again. And I've never really, I don't think I've ever seen a ball, a football do that before. Certainly not in a game. So for the most, certainly for the most unique goal of 2021, that was my pick. Oh, I thought you'd go for Patrick Schick in the year of 2020. <laughs> I knew it was going to come up. I had it, but I decided not to say it. That was unique. Around. That was unique, wasn't it? Can you uh, talk us through it, Graham? I can't remember that goal, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't want to be reminded of it. So, thank you. You're welcome. That was a goal from the halfway line. There was also a good Paul Pogba goal, I seem to remember, at year 2020. Was mm-hmm. it against Germany? There was a, a nice curly oh, Switzerland. Yeah. Switzerland. Yeah, nice long ranger there. Uh, Taylor, where you landed here? Uh, I have three nomina- nominations, none of which have been mentioned so far. The first one, uh, it's maybe my Man United bias. Andreas Pereira. Never thought I would say like significantly positive oh, yeah, things about him. 
Uh, but volley off a clearance, hit first time, and it's one of those super pleasing ones, similar to what Joe was mentioning. Underside of the bar to the floor, back to the top netting. Uh, it's just such a pretty thing to see, and especially when it's hit like out of the air the way it is. To balance that out, though, I will have a Man City nominee, and mine will be Carol- uh, Caroline Weir. Uh, the pullback, then the touch, then the chip from 18 oh, yards yeah. out in the Manchester Derby. That's one of those goals I think I kind of... My standard for these is a goal that I keep watching on repeat, and it gets better every single time, but you notice different things, and it's just a little bit gravity-defying, and that's what everything she does here was. And in terms of gravity-defying, my my final one, and maybe my top choice, would be uh, Armand Lorient, uh, or Loriente, uh, free kick for Lorient versus Nantes in uh, the French League. He's at least 40 yards out, and it is a moon ball that is also a knuckle, like a knuckle puck shot as well. It dips into the far side netting. It looks like it's going maybe 30 yards over at one point. It ends up like almost bottom side netting somehow. But just how much crazy spin is on this or knuckle is on this makes it super fun to watch over and over and over again from a bunch of different angles. So those would be my three. Told me through your terminology there, Taylor. Moon ball is presumably where it has an arc, and knuckle ball is where it doesn't spin? Yes, exactly. Right. So it's moon ball would basically just be like you're hitting a shot that seems like it's going to hit the moon, in my mind. Like you're hitting yeah. it so high, but then it somehow goes down, and the way it goes down is because it knuckles so hard, because he puts no spin on it, because of the way he hits the ball, which in and of itself is pretty good technique, but that he manages to have it knuckle into the far side netting, all the more impressive. And his name's Loriente, and he plays for Lorient. That is correct. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Um, the one goal I think that no one has mentioned, I'm perhaps surprised by Mosala against Man City. Yeah, that's pretty good. Solo, yeah. That Messi-esque solo run. He like beats three players with his first touch, a couple more, a couple more, and puts it in at the most acute angle into the side netting. That was a wonderful one. Graham, how do you feel about that one? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a beauty. The, the strength and the... And the the technical ability and the number of players that he beats, and also just the fact that it's against you know Man City at Anfield as well. The stage is is all incredible. The other the other goal that just I found, I'm not convinced it's it's actually that. I mean, it's brilliant, but we're talking about the best goals of the year. I'm not sure it's up there, but it, it, I found it so satisfying was Edison Cavani um, oh, yeah. from sort of 35 yards out Oh yeah, um, for Manchester United in the Premier League last year. And it wasn't until I watched the replays again when I was doing the research for this that I realised just how far out he actually is. I kind of had it in my mind it was from the edge of the box, but it's, it's really not. And um, yeah, I really like that finish. I think it's because it's so deliberate, you know, he's... he's executed it absolutely perfectly he's meant what he meant to do so he's done what he meant to do so yeah that was another one on my list yeah it was just like chic you're right you're absolutely right there um the the, the i was trying to think erling Haaland must have scored some bangers in 21 the only one i found was there was yeah. one against schalke where he does like yeah, the one volley. of those sideways volleys do you remember that one anyone remember that yeah like a kind of scissor volley yeah. cross comes in from the left and then he Hits it into the far corner of the net. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, wonderful stuff. All right, Robert, that's a, that's some uh, some shortlisted goals there. Do we have a consensus on the best? I don't suppose we do. Anybody? Lamella? A few of us said Tiago. Tiago? <sighs> I've been watching the Lamella one throughout this conversation, and that might be my favorite. I know I didn't say it, but I think I'm Team Lamella now. I think there's a Meg in there, too, and that is like the worm burner, oh, the low Rabona. You don't often get that. Goes bottom right? I, Are you kidding me? Yeah. Unreal. Yeah, it's a pretty good goal. Did you say worm burner instead of like? Yeah, you're throwing out all sorts of terms in this <laughs> conversation. Like daisy cutter, right? A worm burner. I like that. Yeah, man. Wonderful stuff. Yeah, thank you for the uh, terminology lessons today, T Rock. Um, I think I learned that you... from golf. But yeah, my pleasure. Oh, 
you go. Golf fan. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, you know a bit golf, but not tennis. Oh. I thought they I didn't say hand I like golf or I'm good at golf. I slice into the woods every time unless I hit a worm burner. That's, that's how it works. <laughs> That sounds very rude. Anyway, I'm going to move on. Thank you, Robert, for the question. Kenneth Seiden's got one here. What has happened to Rafa Benitez? Has he had a Mourinho-esque decline, or is he just uh, taking positions with too high expectations? Rafa, of course, sacked after 200 days in charge at Everton. Uh, not very long after he sold Luca Didier and uh, changed out half the technical staff as well. Good plan, <laughs> Everton. Wonderful stuff there. Uh, Graham, what has happened to Mr. Benitez? He's gone to two Champions League finals, one Europa League, Club World Cup, uh, on the back of Mourinho's work, to be fair. Uh, two league titles, a championship with Newcastle. He good manager. Why no good now? <laughs> um. I think repeatedly Benitez has a, a history of taking bad jobs at bad times. Um, so from Inter after Jose Mourinho to Real Madrid after Jose Mourinho to Chelsea, given the rivalry that developed when Jose Mourinho was there to Everton at this particular point, it feels like maybe he needs an agent that <laughs> points him in the right direction, I think. Um I do, I do still feel like Benitez can set up a team well. We saw glimpses of that in the very early stages of this season. And I mean very early stages at the top. The the first four games, I think Everton won three this season. They looked pretty, pretty good. Then I think he struggles to adapt when things kind of run away from him or, or um, there's, a, there's a run of bad results or when players leave as a common theme as well or when they're missing out injured. That was certainly a factor at Everton. He just wasn't able to kind of find a compromise in his system that that um, compensated for those players not being there. And I think that has been a problem all the way through his his career. But even then, this is... So Benitez is a good manager, right? My spicy opinion and is that Benitez has earned a reputation in English football that he maybe, he maybe didn't deserve. So when I hear him sort of getting mentioned in the same breath, breath as Mourinho... I just feel like Mourinho has been an elite level manager. Benitez, yes, he's had success. He won the Champions League in 2005. He made a final in 2007. And I think Europe is where he's done a lot of his best work. But domestically, this is a guy that hasn't won a league title since 2004 at Valencia. And he's been the coach of some of the biggest clubs in Europe. Obviously, now we're talking Everton. Before that, he was in China, then Newcastle. But there was a spell when Benitez was getting really big jobs at you know Chelsea and Inter and Real Madrid. And he's never really challenge for a league title since like Liverpool when he came up short so it's it's a, it's a difficult one I do think he um is probably falling behind the curve a little bit yeah. but I still see problems from him now that I saw saw from him earlier in his career Joe what do you think about it is 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 there a case that um, Everton failed him rather than he failed Everton. You look at their last few managers, you know, Ancelotti and uh, Koeman before, before Marco Silva good managers who have not done well there yeah, I think there's there's guilt on both sides here, right? To hit at the Everton side first, I think you're wise to point us in that direction. Under Farhad Moshiri, there's there's challenges under his ownership, right? He came into the club in 2016. There's been a lot of bad investment in that time period. You think about Yannick Balassi coming in for $32 million. Uh, that was back, I believe, in 16-17. There were more expensive deals in 2017 and 18. You've got $33 million for Alex Awobi and then $27 million for Andre Gomes in, in 2019. There have been good deals along the way, getting Dominic Calvert-Lewin and, and Joseph Gunnagay. Those are both good signings they made, I believe, back in 2016. I think that was under Moshiri. 
There have been challenges, though. You think about that bad investment combined with the number of managers they've gone through. Ronald Koeman, you mentioned. Sam Allardyce, Marco Silva, Carlo Ancelotti, and then now Rafa Benitez. I mean, that's one, two, three, four, five managers that have been out since the end of the Roberto Martinez era in 2016. In that time frame, Everton have never managed to finish to end the season in the top six under any of those five managers. And, and they're doing that right now, according to SpotRack with the seventh highest wage bill in the Premier League. So there's there's challenges organizationally and structurally with Everton. I think that's important to note here. Not all of the blame for how Everton are operating as a club right now should fall on Rafa Benitez. Just like no blame or credit should fully lie on a manager's shoulders for his work or her work at any club, right? I think that's that's pretty clear. But there's issues when you pair Rafa Benitez and his approach with a club like Moshiri's Everton, who are trying to be ambitious. His his stated uh, goal when he took over as an owner of Everton was to break in and disrupt that top six. And they very clearly haven't done that. So there's issue with investment. There's issue with the monetary side of things, especially when you look at the wage bill and where they are currently in the Premier League table. I believe they're 16th right now. They were 15th when Benitez was officially out. Tactically, you think about how Rafa Benitez plays and. I do think there's blame here in that soccer, especially at this level of the club, of what Everton is spending. Tactically, it's soccer has left Benitez behind a little bit. You think back to Real Madrid, and he was widely disliked uh, for his tactical approach with that particular team and that what half season he spent there in, in, in Real Madrid. Then he was effective with Newcastle, getting them promoted to the Premier League in 2017 and then getting the mid-table for the next two years. He did that playing a pragmatic style, a 4-2-3-1, flattened into maybe more of a 4-5-1 at times, transitional play, defensive compactness, all of those basic principles that you expect from a team that's trying to make their way up a league and, and play more safe, pragmatic style. And it, it worked for him. Then he goes to China, then he comes back to the Premier League with Everton this season, and tactically, he looks more similar to what new, his Newcastle team was than what Carlo Ancelotti had left him. He tore down, Benitez did, a lot of what Ancelotti had built tactically and replaced it with longer passing, hopeful direct play, more more of a pragmatic style. And none of those things are necessarily bad, but when you're doing it at a club that has different ambitions, that creates problems. And when you're doing it without getting results, that also creates problems. I do think there's a reality here in which if Benitez was still coaching Everton throughout the rest of the season, they probably would have bounced a bit higher in the table. I, I bet they would have finished in between 10th, 11th, 12th, somewhere in that range, right? But they didn't want to wait. Everton didn't want to wait. Moshiri didn't want to wait for that. And that's somewhat understandable. The job and the manager and the style don't fit together. And then you have all the drama going on behind the scenes that, that maybe, Taylor, you can speak to. I feel like I've been talking for a long time now. But there's so many factors here that, that contribute to this situation not working out. And I think there's individual factors that make Benitez maybe not the right choice for a team that's trying to do what Everton said they were trying to do. I mean, have we already talked about the fact that he's managing Everton having previously managed Liverpool? Because I feel like right there is a major thing that like already was going to have fans against him and meant that he had an uphill battle from the jump. And I do feel like that is sort of where Everton haven't helped. You all have talked about the kind of some of the decisions they've made that they're appointing directors of football to then let Rafa Benitez have say over who's being hired. And, and I think that there's a lot of kind of confusion about who's doing what and who is actually in charge, which leads to just a lot of confusion across the board. But to Benitez, I, I actually, I disagree with Joe a little bit. I, I don't think this would have turned around because I think he is a manager that requires buy-in across the board. Everything I've read about him, uh, the profiles I've read, 
indicate that he is not the most warm of people. He is not the friendliest of people. That is not his interest when it comes to managing. He is very much about treating everybody equally and expecting everybody to perform. He's not giving big emotional team talks. He's not yelling at people if things don't go their way. But on the flip side, he's also not bigging people up and cheering for them and rewarding them when they have good games. It's sort of the expectation is you do what he asks, and if you do it, that's great. And if you don't, he'll find someone who will. And I think that if you're getting people, this is where the similarity to Jose Mourinho in my mind is is sort of accurate. If you're getting a team that buys in and everybody's on board and everybody is sort of believing the message, believing the instruction, I think you can get results. But if you have people who were like basically brought in to play for Carlo Ancelotti, who is notoriously a very friendly, affable manager. He's a pat on the back kind of guy. He's about sort of making the squad have harmony to then get the result to get the results. That's not what Benitez is going to do. And I think you're instantly sort of in this position of manager who previously managed your like arch rival, your crosstown rival, is following in the footsteps of a legendary manager who is known to be this avuncular gentleman. And in comes Rafa Benitez, who is just not going to be that. I think it's going to be a really difficult scenario from the beginning. I think it requires him to be at a club like Newcastle, where there's not a ton of resources. So you do have to kind of buy it. You do have this sort of backs against the wall, chip on our shoulder. We've got to be a unit to make something happen. And I think at least right now, if you don't have that collective buy-in, I don't think you're going to get the results. And so I, I'm I'm sad for Rafa Benitez because the few times I've interacted with him, he has been very, very friendly and interesting and funny, but it doesn't seem like that's the way he is with his team or with his teams, with his players. So here we are. Yeah, Jim, Jamie Carragher has said more than once on, on Sky that during his time at Liverpool, during obviously Carragher played for Benitez, and Carragher at that time was, you know, a dressing room leader. He was a key part of a successful team. That he and Benitez never once spoke about something that wasn't football related. There was never any chat about how's the family, what did you do on, you know, Sunday on your day off or whatever. Never once. And that kind of sums up what Benitez is, is kind of like with his players. Taylor, I'm going to jump back and ask the question every listener is asking. When did you re- uh, interact with Rafa Benitez? Uh, uh, preseason, preseason tours. He was here. I forget for which teams, but uh, my, like the best one was he was. It was at the the Ravens Stadium, and we were in this tiny little press room uh, that was maybe like 150 degrees. And he came in, still in a full suit and tie, answered all the questions while like dabbing, like sweat is pouring off of his head. And at the end of it, he sa- he said in English. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for the sauna. And then walked out. And it was just like a good <laughs> mic drop line. And he, and like his questions along the way were, were as what you'd expect, to, to Graham's point. If you ask him about football, if you ask him about like what were you trying to do here, you're going to get an answer. If you ask him about rumors and who are you going to sign and why haven't you sold this player yet, that seems to be where you're going to get more of a closed, colder answer. So I felt like uh, that was that was at least, I think that was with, Chelsea, maybe? I forget where he was at that point. Maybe that was with Inter. Um, but yeah, I've had two different sort of like press press zone sort of moments with him that were uh, enough for me to think like, yeah, I kind of like this guy, even though as a Man United fan uh, for the longest time, I did not like him at all. <laughs> uh, in the early 2000s, if you want on his Wikipedia page, uh, the first sentence was, Rafa Benitez is a kettle-headed Spaniard. Um, and I always wonder what, like, a tea kettle? I've, I've no idea. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it always struck me. Uh, I don't know why I mentioned that, apropos of nothing, but uh, thank you very much for the question, Kenneth. And we'll take a couple more questions after this short break. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are taking your questions. Here's one from Logan Weeding. This is a great one. Uh, In honor of Ted Lasso, who are some of the most unqualified coaches in soccer history? I'm going to get the ball rolling with a little guy I like to call Alan Shearer. Uh, In 2008-2009, Mr. Shearer, a local legend in Newcastle, was given the job of saving Newcastle from relegation uh, with eight games to spare in that season. He took the job with no coaching experience whatsoever, never done any kind of job like that, just off the back of the uh, the name Alan Shearer. Uh, He didn't have his UEFA Pro license. He was given dispensation by the Premier League to manage Newcastle at that point. Um... And that showed he did not save Newcastle United. He was not offered the job in the championship the following season, despite being a local legend. And he hasn't managed a single game since. So I'm starting the ball rolling with Alan Shearer. Lovely fella, um, but rather unqualified, Graham, for that role. Yeah, he was he was also on my list as well. But I, I put the blame on Mike Ashley for that one rather than Alan Shearer. Oh, I sure. think he just kind of... Not, not that I, I don't think you were blaming him, but just um, he kind of just answered the call and uh, the fact that Ashley even offered him the job is, is uh, kind of tells you everything you need to know about Mike Ashley and his uh, his football knowledge. Um, <laughs> along kind of similar lines, I went for another former England international turned pundit. <laughs> I went for Gary Neville. <laughs> who uh, had a very short time as Valencia manager. So he hadn't been involved in management in any level when in December 2015, he was out of the blue appointed Valencia head coach. Um, This was largely down to his um, business relationship that he has with Peter Lim, who is the majority shareholder at Valencia, but he's also a shareholder at Salford City, which Neville co-owns with the the class of 92, you know, his his former Manchester United teammates. Um, And... I guess he had been assistant manager with Roy Hodgson for England for a spell. Um, so he had maybe slightly more experience of being in a, in a dressing room setting as a, as a coach than maybe Shearer had, when he, which he had not, none of that. But he was still at that point predominantly known for being a TV pundit. And it didn't go well. Um, he lasted only, only 16 games and he was sacked in March, having been appointed in the December He has never returned to management or even coaching since then. And to his credit, he has since acknowledged how ridiculous it was that he was given that job in the first place. He admits, I've heard him admit many times on Sky that he should never have taken the job, that he kind of regrets it. So um, it was just a very strange situation. Obviously, his his brother was his assistant manager as well, Phil, and he has gone on to have a, a, a legitimate 
managerial career, obviously in MLS now, having been the, the England women's national team manager as well. So just a very strange episode all around that one. <laughs> it definitely was. And Graham, while researching Alan Shearer, I found an article on the BBC website from 2009 in which uh, someone criticised uh, Alan Shearer and criticised coaches being given jobs with no experience. That was Gary Neville who said that <laughs> in 2009. So uh, no shortage of irony there. Uh, Taylor Rockwell, what have you found? I've got a couple. Uh, I want to start with one that maybe Graham uh, will know more about than I do. Uh, Franck Sazi, uh, French international, mm, played for eight clubs in his career, mostly in France. Graham, are you familiar? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, a big name in Scottish football, played for Hibs and uh, was uh, not such a good manager. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, that was his final club where he played 77 games in two seasons, which... Feels appropriately uh, Scottish Premiership. Uh, then when Alex McLeish leaves to manage Rangers, they appoint Salzi to take over. He retires as a player. He had been dealing with, I think, an Achilles issue. Becomes the manager, wins one in 15 games, none to start the new season, and is sacked. And it seems like there's been some, like, a changing in the way people perceive this, that maybe it was an unfair sacking, maybe it was an unfair hire, that he didn't have the experience. But either way, for it to be his first managerial gig, and only managerial gig at that, I think tells me what I need to know about him as a manager. Graham, uh, am I harsh for putting him on this list? No, 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 you're not. It's, it's, uh, it's entirely fair, and it follows a, a common theme on this list of players who, are, who have been hired to jobs on the basis of their reputation as a player, because Frank Sauzy, to this day, is still a bit of a hero for the Hibs fan, fans, but um, not for what he did as a manager, which was largely forgettable. It didn't help that he was following Alex McLeish, who I know has gained a bit of a reputation recently, but believe it or not, for a spell, he was a very good manager, and that was a good spell for Hibernian um, at that time. So, difficult act to follow for Sozzi, but it, it says a lot that he hasn't really been involved in management since. Uh, yes, and I, I'm not sure what it says for Scottish football that my next nominee is also uh, relating to Scotland. It'd be Claude <laughs> oh, Anelka, wow. uh, Nicola Anelka's brother, <laughs> older brother, uh, played for a few French clubs. There's no like, there's not a ton of information about that. I don't think it, any of them were at a high level from 1986 to 1997. He then becomes, I think, a part-time DJ amongst other things. But in 2004. <laughs> With the backing of a shadow investor, a.k.a. his brother, I'm assuming, he invests approximately £300,000 into Scottish side Wraith Rovers, took over the dual roles of of technical director and manager. Uh, He lasted eight games in charge as manager, one draw, seven defeats. He steps away from the managerial side to focus on running the club. That was in September that he resigned managerial duties. In October, he resigned from the technical director role as well. Uh, Did not play out the way he expected, but for a person with zero managerial experience to effectively buy their way into a position and then crash out spectacularly has me thinking... That is the reverse Ted Lasso. Um, two other names, really briefly. One would be Rude Hullet, uh, who did have a, a decent amount of managerial experience, all of it sort of ending with sacking or quitting in strange circumstances. But when he goes to the LA Galaxy, it's pretty much a disaster from start to finish. He's appointed basically behind the back of then-GM Alexi Lalas, though Lalas is then blamed for that. Uh, it sounds like it was basically David Beckham's team, Decided that Ruud Hullet should be the manager of the LA Galaxy, but he had zero knowledge of the league or its intricacies. 
exemplified by demanding the signing of Celestine Babayaro, who then never plays for the team. They get rid of him, and then Hullet wants to bring in more replacements, not realizing that they couldn't at that time because there are financial restrictions. And it really was just a disaster. It's still pointed to as a problem uh, when it comes to, like, or like, like the sort of problem when it comes to hiring foreign coaches with some coaching experience to take over in Major League Soccer. And my last one that I will put to the group, I won't go too long on this one. I'm just wondering, is there an argument for Jürgen Klinsmann to be in this conversation? He gets the Germany job and has success there. But now I feel like the consensus opinion is that most of the success was because Yogi Lowe was doing the training and the coaching. And and, uh, Jürgen Klinsmann was doing the sort of cheerleading, the energizing, the leading by example in that way. But Lowe was doing the actual strategy. After that, Klinsmann goes to Bayern Munich, which is a disaster, and you can read more from Philip Lahm about that than I can say here. (laughs) Takes over the USMNT, and in my opinion, that does not go very well, and there's plenty of stuff you can read about players feeling like they didn't get instruction, they didn't get a ton of training, there wasn't a lot of insight there. So to me, he is somebody who could potentially be included on this list as well. Is there a difference between an unqualified coach and a bad coach, Taylor? Uh, That's that's... a good question. Yeah, I guess there has to be, right? You You can be one or the other, and sometimes both. One name I thought you might bring up you didn't, Ryan Giggs. Um, oh, yeah. Appointed manager of Manchester United in 2013. How did I you mean, that? that was, what, four games as the interim manager? And yeah. he gave spectacular team talks and did yeah. an amazing job, and we don't need to talk about Ryan Giggs anymore. We don't. He was literally unqualified. Um, Joe, anything to add? The only name that I'll toss out there that I don't think has been mentioned yet is Diego Maradona getting the Argentina yes. job. <laughs> He'd coached, I believe. Good one, Joe. If if Wikipedia is to be believed, he had coached 23 games in Argentina. (laughs) He'd won three of them. Uh, and he gets the Argentina job, and they lose. It's to Germany, right? In that in that particular World Cup. I mean, it's there's yeah. there's challenges yeah. with Diego Maradona in general, and uh, I don't know that he was the presence to lead that Argentina team. Joe, did you look through that team that they had in 2010, that World Cup? It was it was a strong team and just yeah just the fact that they thought it was just insanity to put Maradona in charge when he was so inexperienced and just so Maradona. Um, <laughs> I was looking yeah. for a word there, but it was it was a b- bizarre decision. Graham, That's- I feel like it's like when when as a kid I would I would complain and then I would like get what I wanted and then I would feel bad about getting it because it's like ah I don't ah this feels weird now I feel like it was just like. Argentina fans wanted Maradona, sort of, and finally the FA were just like, fine, here you go. He's in charge. Come what may. And what came was insanity from start to finish. Yeah. Notorious for their good organization and decisions, the Argentinian FA, of course. Um, <laughs> long, long regarded in that manner. Uh, two other names I'll very quickly throw out before we move on from this question. Um, Pirlo, Andre Pirlo at Juventus, who was Juventus's under-23 coach, uh, to be but fair, for a full... Thesis. Yeah, well, he was he was under twenty three coach for nine days before he was uh, yeah, appointed a first team coach. So um, he had a full nine days of coaching experience before being brought on to one of the biggest jobs in soccer. And the probably the, the biggest one I can think of, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, when he managed the Euro twenty sixteen final, um, <laughs> despite not even wearing a suit very good. for that one. Boom, boom. Thank you very much, Logan, for that question. One final question for the day from Derek Light. In the process of planning a wedding is Derek, and he's trying to figure out who he should select as his efficient. Efficient? Is that the right word? Yeah, efficient. Yeah. Sounds official. There we go. (laughs) Uh, Which footballer, asked Derek, past or present, would you have wanted to officiate your wedding? Um... 
Joe, you haven't had one yet, to my knowledge. So let's start with you first as, as the one person who may have the opportunity to have a, sure. a soccer player, past or present. Sure. So there's two routes I can go here. One is the sincere route of someone that I think would do a really good job. And the other is a route that I think would just be really funny. I'll start with the sincere route first. N'Golo Kante is my choice for that. I think he would endear himself to all of my friends and family. I just think he would be the star yep. of the show, but not in a way that like overshadows the bride and groom, but just just the right touch. And I think Conte would bring that. I think that would be beautiful. And, and the funny route, just what would Zlatan do? What like what would he do? <laughs> I have no idea, but I desperately want to find out. So that's one. And Clint Dempsey is the other. Maybe he's going to rap. Maybe he's going to talk about fishing. Oh, I don't know what he's going to do. But there's going to be a few jokes in there. It's going to be weird. But I'm going to be dying laughing because I know who Clint Dempsey is. Probably a lot of people there maybe won't know who he is and certainly won't understand his his cult presence in American soccer. But I uh, I think that's a great one. Joe, with all due respect, I don't feel like you've got a philosophy in place here because Conte to Zlatan, they are polar opposites, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, I mean, that's the idea is I got, I got <laughs> options to cover whatever you know, we feel is the right vibe for the ceremony. I think it's perfect. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Graham, I assume you want someone who could um, sternly officiate and give a handshake between you and your partner of, of some kind. You don't want anyone who's going to speak much, right? right. So <laughs> I'm, I'm saying messy. Um, yeah. Not really because he's the greatest player of all time, but because I think he would get the vows done really quickly, and then just he'd just want to get out of there and back to wearing really bad jean shorts and running around after that big dog that he's got. Um, so yeah, Messi. I don't feel like I'd have to interact much with him, and that would suit me fine. He would officiate in jorts, though, wouldn't he? That is a that is an issue. That that is a downside. So maybe 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 if I'm gonna. Pick someone who's not going to wear jorts and might actually speak a little bit. I'll go for John McGinn. So he would at least have some good banter, some good chat. He's a good laugh, that boy, and a bit of a Scotland national team hero. So <laughs> one of those two. Now now I think about it, Messi's a good choice because the dog could be a ring bearer as well. That's that's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah lots of I, possibilities. I'm, I'm not so good with kind of big dogs, though, so I, I'm not sure I'd be able to go near the dog. Do you like dogs, Graham? Do you like dogs? Yeah. Anyway, um, Taylor, what do you feel about this one? I feel that I like dogs, but I like caravans more. I <laughs> yes. also am mildly, mildly bitter uh, at Joe, which means it's an exceptionally good answer because N'Golo Conte is probably the answer. That is a great shot by Joe Lowry. Um, but I may be guilty of reverse ageism here, but I don't think I can take anybody as an officiant who is significantly younger than I am. Like, 22-year-old Christian Pulisic is not the person I'm looking to to tell me about love and connection together. Like, I just don't think it's it's going to work for me. So I feel like shots fired at Joe a little bit there. I apologize, <laughs> Joe Lowry. That's fine. But I also he don't want anyone who's going to upstage. Uh, with a crucifix on it, though. Um, yeah, he also was in GQ, Taylor. I mean, come on now. <laughs> yeah, I saw what he wore in GQ. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> I also don't want anybody who's going to upstage it. They're going to make it about them. I do feel like that is the kind of Zlatan route. But I want them to maybe get involved a little bit afterwards. Like I, I feel like it's a good sign if the efficient is maybe having some cake and 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 cutting a rug. I want a little bit of flair, like maybe owning their own jewelry line. I need them to be dependable, steady, capable. That man is Demarcus Beasley. I would have Demarcus Beasley as my officiant. I went the similar route to Joe with uh, Clint Dempsey. I think. Wonderful stuff. Um, I've got a couple choices I'll add to the pile as well. I, I will say the bar was set very high by the guy at the Sandals Resort who was looking at his watch uh, quite a lot while um, doing our ceremony for, for wow. my actual wedding. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to go first off with Peter Crouch, who 
uh, is literally an ordained minister. He officiated a wedding in July 2021, says here. Um, I think he's a perfect choice, though, because he's very affable. He's got good banter. Apparently, he does a podcast. I don't know. I only listen to this one. Um, and Attaboy. he's someone who, Attaboy, right. if, you, if you've got a big crowd, um, everyone could see him at the back. That's important, I think, um, for, for your efficient <laughs> who's uh, giving, giving out some lights on top of them. What's that, Graham? You can just put some lights on top of them as well. Yeah. Some decorative lights. And you know he'd have a good... He'd be on the dance floor straight afterwards. You know that. He'd be good time. Yeah, doing the he'd robot. Be a good time. And then I thought a bit more seriously, someone who can deliver like a good rousing speech, who can hold the attention of a room. You want like a captain. Uh, someone who doesn't cheat or dive in their career. Someone who's loyal, who values family. I landed on Il Capitano Paolo Maldini, mm. who I feel... Fits the bill in all those ways. The only problem with Maldini is he's too handsome. He, 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 yep. he, you can't have that level of handsome in your wedding mm, unless you can match it. And I that's don't true. think I can. That's a problem. Um, I wouldn't have Way Jack to know Grealish. yourself, Ryan. Way to know yourself. <laughs> I know, I know. I know my limits. Uh, and I'd, I'd just say I wouldn't have Jack Grealish for the same reason. And also, I don't think the man who doesn't know what an encyclopedia is would get through the <laughs> ceremony uh, uh, like a master orator. Um, yeah. So I think we've got some good options there. I'm tempted to say Kante is the winner, though. Yes, I win. win. (laughs) Is it wrong that I feel like if Graham were actually going to have someone from the footballing world do his wedding and it wanted it to be? Because like I do think Graham has more emotion than he lets on. I do feel like he, he, you know, the things he loves, he loves. I'm making Graham uncomfortable right now. And I feel like a man (laughs) who is like that but still has the level of severity and sincerity that would be required is Diego Simeone. And I feel like Diego Simeone could officiate Graham's wedding and that would be just fine. I would, I would actually be okay with that. Uh, everyone in black suits and and black shirts yep. as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Bride and groom, that, <laughs> both sides, yeah, everybody. Yeah, yeah, everyone matching, both sides. <laughs> yeah, I could get down with that. I, I'm Graham at your wedding. I'm just picturing like a Gordon Strachan figure saying, "You want to get married? You want to get married? All right, let's go." Exactly. Pub. Yeah, that that is pretty much what my wedding was like. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. I wish I, I was in the... I can't tell if he's uh... joking. I can't. I think it's real. I think this is actually what happened. Yeah. I'm sure it was a magical day in the hairdresser slash bait shop slash uh, wedding um, <laughs> venue where Graham was yeah. married. I got, I got my, my hair cut at one end of the room. I then moved a few steps forwards. I picked out my tackle for the fishing trip and then I moved a few steps forwards. I got married. Yeah. And didn't you also like watch a game that day and have work as well? <laughs> Yeah, I had like an iPad, <laughs> like an iPad, like strapped to my to each hand. Oh, yeah. Oh, listener, your semi-annual reminder that Graham worked a soccer game on his wedding day. <laughs> yeah, that is abs- that is absolutely true. That is not that is not a joke. I did a, a West Ham United game, uh, which was a twelve thirty kickoff before my wedding ceremony at uh, four. Was it maybe or three? Oh. Yeah, later in the afternoon. Oh, such memories for you, Graham. Never change. Never change is all I can say. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much for your answers to these listener questions today. Always a pleasure, Ryan Bailey. Thank you. Joe Lowry, same same thing, but with your name. Oh, thanks, Ryan. (laughs) I'd be a good efficient, wouldn't I, with that kind of behaviour? Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much to you too, sir. Right back at you, and thank you, Graham, for the pause before you decided to thank Ryan uh, in reverse. (laughs) Oh, listener. (laughs) Another great one in the books. We'll see you on the feed. Bye!